You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first uh, chapter, all 10 verses this morning. This sermon, as you saw in your uh, bulletin, is entitled Holy Waiting. If you're one who uh, takes notes and uh, likes to, uh, to, to put the sermon title down in your notes. Um, and as you're turning there, um, we have a little bit of time before we get to the reading of God's Word because I want to give you some background, um, so, uh, which is not my normal uh, pattern. I think it's good to read God's Word right out of the gate, but, uh, but I want to set up uh, where we're going here. And, and I, I want to just ask you a question to start. Have you found in your life that one of the main components of your life is waiting? Actually, one of the main things we do seems to be waiting. We're, we, we expend energy waiting, waiting in line, waiting at the grocery store, waiting in traffic. If you're living in the mid-Atlantic region and specifically Maryland, and probably even worse for you here in the D.C. area, uh, we wait in traffic. Lines is long, longer than you can see the end of. As teenagers, you remember many of you, uh, if you're a teenager, you're may, maybe in this state now, but many of you remember back being a teenager when you're 15, you waited for your driver's license. And parents, we, we, we wish they would wait longer, right? We wait for college. We wait for our career. We wait for advancement in our career. We wait for a vacation. We wait for a raise. We wait to buy a home. There's all of these things, that, all these goals that we have out in front of us that we're waiting. So we're busy, we're active, we're doing things, and yet at the same time, all of us have things that we're waiting on. Maybe this morning you're here and you're waiting for marriage or you're waiting for a child. Perhaps you're waiting for a loved one to become a Christian. Maybe you're recently, you went to the doctor and now you're waiting for a diagnosis or relief from some area of suffering in your life. Some even wait for the end of life or, or wait for the years of retirement. Waiting is a part of living and it's a very important topic in all of scripture and particularly to the apostle Paul as we'll see this morning. And one of his letters, this letter to the church at Thessalonica, focuses on how to live while we wait here in this earth. This is a fledgling church that he's writing to. And this was a church that was waiting for Jesus' return. And they had recently trusted in Jesus Christ. They had recently turned to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And they, they were in a situation where they were hoping that Jesus would come and end the suffering under which they were living. They would, that he would come and change their circumstances. I think all of us can identify with that. As Devin was praying the congregational prayer, the, the pastoral prayer this morning, the amount of things that he was mentioning of areas of suffering and difficulty and trial And at the same time, almost exactly concurrent with that, I got a text on my phone from a dear sister in our church whose cousin, who's more like her sister, just passed away from colon cancer. And we, and we're very aware that in this life, there are, there are many trials and tribulations and we cry out, how long, O Lord, we wait for your return. That's the situation of the church of Thessalonica. That's the situation for us as well. We wait. And Paul is writing to encourage them to live lives of holiness while waiting for Jesus. So as I said, this message is entitled Holy Waiting. And the main point that we're going to see from this text is is a description of what holy waiting looks like. Said simply, let me give you one sentence to summarize what, where we're going this morning. This is the main point of this text. Holy waiting means we serve the living and true God 
while we wait for Jesus' return. It's a bit of a mouthful. Let me repeat it. Holy waiting means we serve the living and true God while we wait for Jesus' return. Now, before we launch in, I want to, as I said, give you a little bit of background as to how this letter came about. Saul, or excuse me, Paul, Silas, also called Silvanus, and Timothy had established this church in approximately 49 AD, and that was during Paul's second missionary journey. I think we have a map. Do we have a a map that we can uh, project? So here's uh, Paul's journey started all the way over here on the east side over in Jerusalem. But you can see he went across Asia Minor and that red line, if you've, you follow it from the east to the west, you can see Thessalonica's up in this region called Macedonia. It's almost the more, most northern point. Philippi is the most northern point on his journey, but Thessalonica is the second most northern point. And that's, that's in the area of uh, Macedonia, just north of Greece. Now, Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman providence of Macedonia. And, and most people in this city worshipped many gods. So this was a polytheistic society. And each one of these gods had a realm of power. So they would worship different gods for different reasons. There was a god of sex. There was a god of money. There was a god of weather. There was, there was gods for everything. And people related to these deities through a system called patronage. Now, what is patronage? Let me give you a theological definition of patronage that I learned from Starbucks. I was recently in Starbucks and I read a sign that said, thank you, Starbucks patrons, which means you give us $9 and we'll give you a handcrafted cup of caffeine. Patronage is about giving to get. Okay, so Paul's writing into a situation where people were were very, they were related to God by giving in order to get. Thessalonians sacrificed, they prayed, and they made offerings to appease the gods. And if the god was happy, they got good circumstances. Now, there were over 20 local gods in uh, Thessalonica, but patronage to Caesar... The, the Roman emperor, Caesar, deified over all of Rome. That was the most significant for them because they were, again, a Roman province. They weren't part of Rome per se, but they were a Roman province. They were under Rome's protectorate. So if they stayed in line, Rome would be happy and Rome would profit from the seaports. Do you see the patronage relationship? Thessalonica got rich. They benefited from Rome. Rome protected them. They had stability. They had happiness. Everybody was happy. Now, here's where the problem starts for Christians living in Thessalonica. The gospel says that Jesus is the true king. Hope is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone as the true king. It is not found in Rome. It is not found in financial stability. So when Paul comes and he preaches this message for three weeks to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, the local leaders began to become fearful that this message was going to destabilize their relationship with Rome. If this Jesus group continued to grow, Rome is going to be upset that Caesar's not getting appropriate patronage. They'd lose their stability. They would lose their protection. They would lose their prosperity. I don't know if you remember Bill Clinton's campaign slogan, unofficial campaign slogan against Bush in 1992. Do you remember it? It's the economy, stupid. Yeah. That wasn't the first time a politician realized that financial prosperity is often the God that we serve because it's the God that serves us. So Paul touched off a nerve and touched a nerve and exploded this powder keg. And we learned from Acts 17 that a riot ensued. 
So while Paul and Silas and Timothy weren't accosted themselves, other Christians were. There was persecution happening as a result of being a church plant here in this city. Three church planters, Paul, Silas, Silvanus, and Timothy, then had to escape over the city wall in a basket at night. And the result then, the writing of this letter comes to a church that is without mature pastoral presence. They, they had a basic understanding of the gospel framework, but they were living and they were waiting for Jesus to return and to rescue them. And they, they didn't have teaching regularly from mature pastoral people around them. Perhaps you're hoping that Jesus will rescue, rescue you from some circumstance today. Maybe you're grieving death. It sounds like there's a number of people that are walking through tri- trials and suffering and grief this morning. Maybe someone you love is actually dying right now in their sin and you are in anguish about that reality. Or you feel personally alone and, and hopeless in some situation and you're crying out, oh Lord, how long will this continue? See, this letter is not just written to a bunch of people that we identify with because they trusted in Jesus 2,000 years ago. We identify with them as human beings who are, like us, needy for Jesus, and we long for Jesus' return. Yet we're called to live and to wait. How then are we to wait? Well, the goal, again, of today is to help us to see how holiness in waiting with eyes fixed on the day of Jesus' return, is a command from God that is for our own good. God desires that our lives be a holy offering. Now, with that, let's turn to uh, God's holy word and read and see how holy waiting means we serve the living and true God while we wait for Jesus' return. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, and let your eyes be lifted up. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done all that is necessary for us to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. You absorbed your Father's holy wrath for our sin that we might be forgiven and free. And Lord, now we wait for your return. We, re- we wait for the fullness of that inheritance. 
Lord God, you have called us to live a life of faith, of love, and of hope in this life, Lord, and to strive for holiness in this life so that you might be glorified and so that your gospel may go forth and so that others might know and the testimony of the gospel might, might go into this dark place. Lord, we need your grace and we need your help. We need, we need your Holy Spirit, Lord. If anything is to be accomplished in this time and in our lives, we need your power. So we roll the burden of responsibility on you and gladly submit to you and take our responsibility seriously to follow after you. Let us be hearers and doers of your word today, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, we're going to look at three points today. The first uh, gives us the evidence of holiness. So we're talking about holy waiting. What does holiness or holy, the holy part of holy waiting look like? The second point we're going to look at is to see how this, this occurs. What takes place that causes holiness to occur in one's life? And then finally, in point three, we're going to focus a bit more on application, how we live out holiness while we wait. So let's start with point number one, which looks at the evidence of holiness. Paul starts with this sort of customary greeting that makes it clear that this church has his heart. He says, grace and peace. Grace in the name of the Father and Son and peace. He, this, is a, this is a group of people that he loves. He, he wasn't eager to leave them in the basket. You know, he was, he was ripped apart from them by the suffering and the trial that was going on. And he recognized that leaving them probably would have put them in a better place to, to not be persecuted. So that was part of the reason why he left in, we learned from the book of Acts. So this is a group of people that has Paul's hearts. He's not unaffectionate towards them. And we can see that in, in verse 2, that his prayers for them are unceasing. They, they are constantly on his mind. God has shown him uh, many ways that they are, they are people that God is at work in and he loves them and he loves the work of God and he loves the evidence of grace that is at work in them. Now, Paul then just reminds them and shows them. He paints the picture of what he sees in them and he gives them three evidences or three manifestations of the ways of, of God's work in them, the holiness of God at work in them. And, and uh, these three ways are faith, love, and hope. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna spend a little bit of time on faith, love, and hope. And this is a, a triad of, or a common description of the kind of life a Christian lives. It's, an, it's important to understand these, especially in, in Paul's writings, because these are uh, to be marks of the life that we are called to live here as we wait in holiness for God. Faith, the first one, Faith is trust. To have faith is to trust. Paul means that they have rooted their lives in the completed work of Jesus and the gospel message. Their faith has an object. There is something in which they rest. There's something in which they place the weight of their, their lives. And that is they sit down and rest in the work of Jesus Christ. As Devin was encouraging us today, confess your sins and rest in the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's part of what it means to be a Christian is that we rest in the work of Jesus Christ. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith then is the foundation of our lives. We, we look back to what Jesus has done and we trust that as our sole grounds for safety, the, the sole ground for protection for our lives. We don't trust in Rome 
We don't trust in our paycheck. We don't trust in how fast our new sports car is going to go. We don't trust in, in our team winning. These are not things that give us real satisfaction. These are not things in which our, we're living for. These are not the things in which we, we, we ultimately hope for. No, we trust in Jesus and, and who he is. Not our wallets, not our circumstances. Not even that God will change those circumstances. We trust in the, a person and the work of that person, that person, Jesus. And he alone is the prime evidence, our trust in him alone is the prime, prime evidence that our lives have been transformed into being holy lives. Therefore, a growingly holy life must spring from faith. A growingly holy life must spring from faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, also, a growingly holy life is not passive. It's at work. When we trust in Jesus, it mobilizes us. It moves us. We don't simply confess Jesus is my king and then go on our merry way. No, it forms our very lives. We live and we move and we breathe increasingly like Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, in other words, you should have an increasingly holy life. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not struggles and trials and difficulties and even in areas where we're, we're particularly struggling with sin and maybe even a prolonged battle of sin. But in our lives as Christians, over the course of our lives, we should be growing and our faith should be being worked out in increased holiness, following after Jesus. This should, have you heard that phrase, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? This reality that our faith is, is a working faith, this reality keeps us from being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Having faith in Jesus Christ means we're in it in this life. We're working, we're living, we're, we're having our being in Jesus and we're, we're valuable to this earth because we are a conduit of God's grace to this earth, to our families, to our co-workers. It, it mobilizes us into this world. See, God's, God's instruction to his children is not grin and bear it until the next life. God calls us to have real life in this life, to be at work in this life. Our waiting then in this life is to be holy, marked by faith that Jesus is our all in all, and therefore busy to reflect that in the way that we spend money, in the way that we vote, in the way that we interact with our neighbors, in the way that we coach our kids' soccer teams, in the way that we, we act as grandparents, in all of the things that we're called to, our faith is to be primary. It should be like the glow that shines from us that all people around us can see that Jesus is our treasure. What does this actually look like? You know what it looks like? It looks like when we're facing difficult trials, we trust that God has good purposes and we keep walking in holiness. We don't take trials as an excuse to abandon God. Like that word that was shared this morning during worship, that when you're in the precipice, you know, at that point, that crisis point where you're, you're under the gun, when the heat is really hot, faith doesn't look like abandoning God. It looks like pressing into God in that, those moments. Instead, instead, of, 
instead of abandoning God, we, we trust that the difficulty that God has sovereignly allowed to, to happen in our life is meant to bring about his perfect purposes within our lives. In your season of waiting, are you trusting in God? Are you continuing to serve God with trust that his ways are perfect? Or have you given yourself a pass saying, I'll serve him in holiness when I'm married, but it's just too hard to be pure in my life before I'm married. Or, or I'll serve him in holiness when I get a raise, but until then it's okay for me to complain because they just don't value me. So quid pro quo, I won't value them. Or when I get that thing I want, then, then I will be joyful in the Lord. But until then, I'm holding that, my joy hostage before the Lord until he gives me what I want. See, faith perseveres in all trials, trusting God in his perfect ways. Second evidence that Paul looks at in, and develops further is the evidence of love. Love, um, well, if faith, faith uh, is the evidence that, that Jesus is at work, it's trusting in Jesus and his work, that then works out in a life of love. The kind of love we're, life we're called to uh, live is a life of loving others. And it's not, a, it's not this quid pro quo type of love. It's, it's not patron love like the Thessalonians had towards Rome, Rome you know, where I will love you if, if I get something in return. Real love, Paul says in verse 3, is a labor. You know what labor means? How many of you are, either have born children or were with uh, your wife when they born children or you're in a delivery room? Labor is hard. It is not easy. Paul uses the word labor here to drive something home. Loving others can be really hard. If you, if you have any, any doubt about that, just think about some of the people in your life that you are called to love. It can be hard at times, right? You have anybody hard to, to love in your life? I know my wife does. We've been married for 18 years as of uh, two weeks ago. And she has borne with much. She has had to persevere with much on the way here, like a dope. We're talking. I'm not paying attention. I miss our turn. This has happened about a million times, a million and three times in our relationship where she's just like, I'm driving and I'm not paying attention. And here we are, extra time being spent on the road that didn't need to happen. And, and half of the time, in, especially in the early years of marriage, somehow I turned to her and blamed her. If you weren't talking to me, I wouldn't have missed the turn. She's had to bear with much sin and struggle. She, loving has not always been easy. You know, about a couple weeks ago, she, she said to me, you know, at times I'm more aware of your critique of me than I am of your encouragement of me. And yet she continues to love me. That's, that is an example to me of what it looks like to bear in love. God is still at work in me. And you have people like that in your life too, that you're called to labor, labor hard to love a coworker, a boss, maybe somebody here in the church, maybe somebody in your small group, a neighbor. You have, we all have people that we are called to labor and love, but that is an evidence of what it looks like to live here in this life because this life is filled with broken, sinful people. So living lovingly is living a holy waiting life for Jesus's return. And the true test of love is, is not if we can love others when they're lovable. It's easy to love people when they're lovable, right? We love babies, right? Especially not crying babies. Sleeping babies, we love them. Oh, they're so cute and cuddly. And they smell good, usually. 
But when that baby becomes a two-year-old and is running around and throwing stuff and getting into lotions and goos and things like that, that that's the time when love gets hard. And, and that's the time when it gets hard as adults, as we love one another, when one another is not being lovable. And when I'm not being lovable, it's hard for others to love me. See, as we, as we wait for Jesus' return, we're called to not just love when it's easy, but to toil to love others like Christ loved us. Even when we were his enemies, even when we were opposed to him, even when we were calling out, give us Barabbas and put him to death, he loved us and died for us. Thirdly, a third evidence of what a holy waiting life looks like is the evidence of hope. Faith, love, and now hope. See, we're not called to be so captivated by this life that we shrink down eternity to a 70 to 80 year lifespan. Christianity has a trajectory. It's, it's not just to make this world a better place. You know, it wasn't like God was one day, you know, you know I think I'm going to come up with a system that will make the world a better place. I'll send my son into this earth and show everybody how to live. You know, some people boil Christianity down to Jesus just shows the way. They, they talk very little about sin and, and sacrifice, and it's just about Jesus as a moral example. Christianity is not just about showing the world a better way. It's not just about the world becoming... It, if that's what it is, Christianity would be no better than Greenpeace or, or PETA or, or politics. No, our relationship with God, our relationship to God is eternal and it has an eternal goal. And there has been a severance of that eternal relationship by our sin. So now we are called by the grace of God and by the gospel of Jesus Christ to enter back into the relationship where we live with the hope of being with Jesus before our father for eternity. God, in other words, is taking us somewhere. The evidence of a Christian life is to have hope for that day when the completion of salvation is realized. Our Christian life now matters for eternity, therefore. A Christian lives now for the smile of eternity. In other words, our call in our lives now is to set our eyes on where we're going. Michelangelo once famously said that every block of stone has has a sculpture or a figure inside of it. It's the sculptor's job to release that figure. I'm paraphrasing because he said it in Italian. I don't know Italian that well yet. So, <laughs> What he was saying was that the sculptor sees the end from the beginning. And God sees the end from the beginning. And he calls us by in reading his word and community together to see the end from the beginning, to know where we're going. This is not where we were created for. This life, the brokenness and the sinfulness that we exist, this is not the end of where we're going. There is good stuff about this. This life is to be treasured and valued and to be, and, and we're to see flourishing happen. But this is not our end. Our end is to be with Jesus and face-to-face relationship. So a Christian is one who waits in holiness with the hope of that day. In other words, our treasure is in Jesus and in being with him. Therefore, suffering and trial and difficulty is not, it's a blip on the radar. It's not the end of the game. It doesn't crush us 
because our hope isn't in this life and the suffering and trial. And when we don't get what we want and the Apple iPhone 7 comes out and we can't afford it, we don't, we don't fall to pieces because you know what? There's going to be an Apple iPhone 8, 9, 10, and probably all the way up to 1,000. And it doesn't really matter if we get the toy or not, because eventually we are going to be with Jesus, and that will satisfy us. The, these three things, faith, love, and hope, are evidences of what it looks like to have a holy life. Then Paul moves on, and this is our second point, and tells us how does this occur? Well, the, the, the evidence of a holy life doesn't just happen by willpower. The evidence of a holy life, point two, is holiness occurs by gospel transformation. In verses four through seven, Paul is clear that God's plan starts with God's love. Your love is all we need. God, in love, has chosen to pluck people from hopelessness and to make them his own. If you are a Christian, do you know that the Almighty God set his affection and his love on you and pursued you specifically by name to rescue you from the wrath that is to come? God Almighty went after you. Do you recognize how significant that is? See, we, we sometimes think of our, our Christianity as just this thing that we wandered into. That we, we just, I just, I just chose one day. There were two options. Either be a Christian, don't be a Christian. And I chose to be a Christian because it seemed like the better option. No, that's not how it happened, friends. It was God's relentless, loving pursuit that plucked us. This is true of those who were rescued from paganism in Thessalonica. And this is true for every modern day Christian. Every Christian is chosen by God as an object of his love. And in in, in verses four through seven, Paul is speaking specifically of his electing, pursuing grace. Just as Old Testament Israel was elected to be a people of, of, of God who walked in the light of God and shed that love to the dark world around them, God's purpose for us then is to bring his transforming grace into our dark world. See, election is not about the spiritual haves and have nots because friends, we are all have nots and election. God's purposes and election is, is to pluck us from his wrath. Not only does verse 10 say that we read that throughout scripture. John three thirty six teaches that as, as well as well as many other scriptures. This is bad news. This wrath to come. That means getting holy and being accepted is only possible by a divine act of God. It only occurs by hearing and accepting the gospel message, verse 5 says. Jesus, the good news message, has come in the flesh to live perfectly, to die sacrificially in our place and to absorb the punishment that we deserve. And then he was resurrected to decommission the grave and to decommission sin's power and to decommission death. He lives and one day will come back to establish his eternal reign among all who trust him. This is the end goal for which we aim in this life. Holiness occurs because he first transformed us and it will be completed when he brings us to the place where salvation is complete. Now, this transformation does not occur by our power, but Paul says here, by the power, the powerful working of the Spirit. Even our power to cooperate first comes from God and His Spirit at work within us. 
Do you see how Paul says that, that this, is, uh, this, this is the fruit, the fruit of the gospel message is conviction? He, he, says, this, um, he says this in verse 5. Uh, because our gospel came to you not only in our word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The word here is not conviction of sin. It's rather full assurance that Christ alone is our confidence. God is saying to us through this passage that our, our assurance, the assurance, the conviction of our assurance, our hope is, is not even in the pattern of our faith and our love and our hope. The assurance is not found in our, in our goodness in, or in our morality. The assurance that we have comes because of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you struggle with assurance, the transformation of the gospel calls us to trace back all the way to the root of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ himself. I have three children. My youngest one is Killian, and he acts like me a lot. Is that what makes him my son, is that he acts like me a lot, like in even scary ways at times? No, that's not what makes him my son. What makes him my son is the historical objective fact that he was born to me and to his mother, and I was there. I have the pictures and the paperwork to prove it, okay? He is my son objectively by historical fact of what was accomplished three years ago. This is true for us as Christians. Our assurance doesn't come because we act like Jesus. Our assurance comes because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I'm not saying that the evidences don't give us, give us a, a strand on which to trace all the way back to Jesus. When you walk in holiness, when you walk in love, when you walk in purity before the Lord, that should, that should be like a, a rope that we begin to trace all the way back. But the end of that rope is found in Jesus Christ crucified for us. That is where our assurance is always found. You will never find assurance in yourself. No matter what, you will always find reasons to doubt your salvation if you look at your own performance until the day of Jesus Christ. That is because God has seen fit to make our acceptance only come from Christ and his perfect work and not our own. So friend, if you struggle with assurance this morning, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Now Paul goes on speaking about how the gospel goes forward. And he uses this wordplay in verses 5 to 7 that is kind of hidden a little bit in our English translations. In verse 5, he says, our gospel came to you. And then later in that verse, he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be. Verse 6, he says, you became imitators of Christ, uh, excuse me, imitators of us. And then he stacks another in verse 7. You became an example to all of Macedonia and Achaia. The idea here, the, the wordplay that he's using is uh, of proving, of becoming, of coming to, of revealing. All of these words are a chain that Paul is stacking up that's, that's being built, and, it's, and he's repeating the same root word over and over. Now, the point of this is not to nerd out on original words, okay? I can assure you that's not the point here. The, the point is that Paul is saying that gospel transformation happens like this. The gospel message transforms people. They then live transformed lives committed to spreading the gospel. Their very lives are a testimony to the transformative power of the gospel. Those who receive the gospel are themselves transformed by the gospel and become imitators. They become followers, in other words, of the pattern of the gospel, the pattern of, of Jesus Christ in their own lives. 
then they display the holy triad of faith, love, and hope. And God gets glory, even in the face of affliction. We love God and we submit to Christ's way, even if it's to our temporary hurt, because we have the eternal hope of heaven forming our current lives. This, Paul tells them, takes gospel activity even farther. The transformed then become agents of transformation. Do you recognize that God has transformed you to become an agent of transformation? That the, the faith that we have that makes us busy, remember we talked about that in point one? Here's where Paul is saying, here's how to be busy in this earth. Here's how to be at work in this earth. Gospel transformation occurring, going with the gospel, seeing the gospel proclaimed, seeing the gospel magnified so that others might be conformed to Jesus Christ and transformed by Jesus Christ. This is what Paul has in view. This is what God has in view. In other words, waiting a holy life, living a holy life while waiting for Jesus has a purpose. And that purpose is found in others losing their grasp on this world and gaining their grasp on Jesus Christ, clinging to Jesus Christ. Holiness here and now matters. It matters to the surrounding world. This is why I think church planning is such a vital and important thing for us to be focused on and to do. Is because there are many communities here in Maryland alone that don't have gospel proclaiming churches. Praise God for those that are. We partner with them. We partner together in sovereign grace as, as churches that are committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I know near us, within 10 miles of us, there's probably five to 10 communities that have no gospel proclaiming presence in them. How are they going to hear the gospel of Jesus? Is it just going to is, is it one of those, you know, skywriters that, that is out of work during the summertime at Ocean City? Is he going to fly over and, you know, Jesus loves you? Or maybe a billboard on, on 95, Jesus loves you. And oh, that now people are getting saved. No, it's going to be by us. By us living transformed lives so that our testimony would go out from our lives and they might be transformed. That's why we must be committed to planting churches with the gospel being proclaimed. Let's look now at the third point. What is the effect of this gospel transformation and this change? And this is where we'll focus a bit more on application. The third point is this. Holiness is worked out while waiting for Jesus. Holiness is worked out while waiting for Jesus. So we looked out at what what holiness looks like. We looked at how that transformation occurs by the gospel of Jesus Christ and our part to play in that and and being conduits of that grace. Now here, we focus on personal application. Holiness is worked out while waiting for Jesus. Verse 8 continues the point Paul has been making about a transformed life being lived out such that faith, love, and hope have an effect on the world around us. Paul actually goes so far as to say, No further testimony of the work of the gospel needed to be made because of the transformation that was occurring in your lives. What did that look like? They were living such holy lives that that, that it it was like a bonfire. Like people looked at them and it was like, they are different. The world is, is filled with darkness and they were a bright shining light throwing all kinds of love and, and warmth out from them. That the, the testimony didn't even need to be added to, Paul said, because their lives were such that they were so holy and committed to Christ that it was going forward and having an impact all over Macedonia and Achaia. See, that's, 
That's the kind of call we're called to live out. This whole region being stirred up. All of Montgomery County, all of Anne Arundel County, all of uh, um, uh, Harford County being, being built up, Howard County being built up, Baltimore County, all over these counties, all over Maryland being built up and stirred up because we're planting churches where people love Jesus so much that it's like a bonfire in a dark night. So they, they displayed their love by receiving and protecting and even risking their lives to spare Paul and his travel mates from death, verse 9 says. See, living out faith, hope, and love, it testifies to the sincerity of our trust in the gospel. It reveals the holiness of God through us while we're living in this life and awaiting his return. But then Paul begins to narrow into something more specific. They had turned from idolatry. Remember, this was risky for them. Persecution had come, to get, had come to them because they didn't worship the way their countrymen worshipped. They weren't doing the patron thing. They weren't kneeling to Jesus and kneeling to, to Caesar. And as a result, they were viewed as troublemakers because they were standing against the gods of the city. And they were standing against Rome. And they were, they were calling Jesus the one true God. You know what this means? Is that they didn't love stability and peace and prosperity and comfort and ease and pleasure and, and pleasure more than they loved the living God. They loved God above all. They looked to the forever day. Now I don't know about you, but when I think of idols, it's hard to relate in some ways to this idea. I mean, idolatry, doesn't it seem so like pagan and voodooish, right? Think of like totem poles and, and things of this nature. I think I'm removed from idolatry. Like I, that's not, that's something that they had to deal with, but that's not, a, that's not an issue for modern day Christians. I, I can believe that lie. But what is idolatry really? It's, it's serving things other than God as patrons so that they'll bring me what I want. And we can wait on our idols to deliver us, can't we? We can even serve them so they'll serve us. Think about it for a minute. Why does a person give in to pornography or adultery or fornication? It's to satisfy an adulterous craving for satisfaction and, and acceptance on our own terms rather than trusting and waiting on God and waiting for his plan. Why do people get drunk? Why do people get high? I mean, talk to some of your coworkers on Monday. What did you do this weekend? probably consuming a lot of alcohol for, for, for a number of them. Why? What, what's the attraction to that? It's because there's a promise that it, it dulls the painful existence. It, it dulls the, 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 the doldrums of life. Why do we shop incessantly? Well, this one might hit closer to home for us as Christians because we talk about those bad things that the world do, do but why do we shop incessantly? Or why do we overeat as Americans? except for that we think materialistic idols will deliver us faster than the holiness without which no one will see God. See, we don't like to wait for God. We don't like to wait for satisfaction. We don't like to wait for pleasure. We don't like to wait for rest. We want it now. We would often rather serve idols rather than the living and true God because we'd like to have control rather than have self-control. We'd rather do it on our time rather than wait for his perfect timeline. 
In our hearts, we know this truth. We, we know that we may never get what we want in this life, even good things. And yet it's still difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to face realities like the reality that we may never know the affection of a spouse for some here. You may never know the joy of having a child or your child may never know the joy of having a child and therefore you might never be a grandparent. You may never know success in your career. Your bank account may never grow to a place where you are worry-free. You may never know the freedom from pain in this life and the grief that you feel over death right now may not go away in this life. See, God has not promised us ultimate satisfaction in this life. In fact, to the contrary, he has promised that, he will not, that we will not be satisfied in this life. We will not find ultimate satisfaction in this life. So that begs the question of all of our hearts. Am I living to be ultimately satisfied here? Now, if you're a Christian, you're walking with Christ, you've been walking with Christ for years, you might say, no. No, okay, move on to the next one. But maybe ask the question this way. Are there areas of my life where no, the general trend is that I'm living for satisfaction in Christ alone, but are there areas of life where you get frustrated because you're not getting what you want? I guarantee you, if you look hard enough, you'll find the answer to that is yes, because it's true of all of us. We are needy people who want what we want and sometimes look away from God as our satisfaction. If so, the the kindness of God in this passage is to remind us that those pursuits, even pursuits that you're pursuing today, they are futile. He's lovingly, just as he lovingly pursued you in election, he is lovingly pursuing you right now by his word to say, it is futile to chase pursuits that will not satisfy in anything other than him, to find your satisfaction in anything other than him. It's like a dog chasing its tail. You will only find that you're dizzy and you won't get what you want at the end. Even if you get it, it will, it'll be like a dog chasing your tail. Like, what do you do once you get it? It doesn't really help, right? We have a 100-pound yellow lab. When he chases a tail, he looks like a fool. As Christians, when we chase our tail, we look like fools. Because once we get it, we're on to the next thing. And we will never be satisfied apart from satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. See, only holy waiting, living a life of holiness, of faith in God, of loving others, of hope in that future day, only a holy life transformed by the gospel of Christ will truly satisfy us. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't mean that everything that we wait for in life is an idol. But if we are focused on this life and its joys as our final satisfaction, or if in an area of our life we're focused on the joys of this life as our final satisfaction in just that area, we will only find dissatisfaction. So what are you waiting for? Has it become an idol? Things you think you need, like stability, satisfaction, comfort, Are you willing this morning, today, are you willing as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you willing as a child of God plucked from the wrath that is to come to trust Jesus by living out a lifelong path that may include suffering while being called to love others? Are you hoping more for that day when Jesus' reign comes and you, you see him or do you want the here and now right now? 
and your comfort right now. See, Jesus is not our patron saint. We don't worship him to get what we want. He's not an an upgrade to our already good life. Like if I add on Jesus, it's like the power package on a new car. No, that's not not Jesus. Jesus is the true king, the only one who will truly satisfy. We are called to kneel our knee before him and trust his way 100% of the way. So as you wait for things, the things of your life, things that, that just seem to stick into your heart as pains and struggles, perhaps what God is doing today is stripping you of idolatry. Perhaps he's calling out to you lovingly to lay down your wants and you're waiting before him and simply say, your way, Jesus, your way, God, I trust you. I trust your timeline and not my own. And then to persevere in hope, to persevere in hope for that day when you see him face to face. That day when all of our waiting, all of our trusting, all of our bearing with one another in love will be worth it. When we see him, when we see him and we love him back forever and forever sing his praise and see his face. See, our our specifically crafted circumstances by a loving God who is our electing God also sovereignly has overseen our circumstances and has sovereignly called us to wait so that he will have his way in our lives and we will reap his, his blessing and good in our lives. Now at times, this life is hard. We will wait and we will wait in this life. You will have wants through affliction that you will never get. How do we live rightly? We turn from idolatry and we serve the living and true God in faith. Loving others, loving him, and with hope. You want the worship team to return? Wasn't that good, huh? <laughs> Just went over. I apologize. It was quite long. Uh, all that we hope for, all that we want is found in Jesus. Let's take a moment now and pray together. And as we do, I want to encourage you, if there are areas where God is calling you to lay down idolatry, or right, lay down wants, confess that to the Lord and ask him to give you the strength to love him more than anything in this life. Lord God, you are good in all of your ways. We trust you. We love you. And yet we see in our hearts pockets and areas of our lives where we, we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait for you, you, Lord. We only want you to return to make our life easier even at times. And we ask, oh God, to purge us, Lord. Purge us and make us holy before you. Help us to follow you in your ways. Lord, if there are areas, there are pockets of idolatry in our lives, we confess that to you. We turn away from those things and we say, Lord God, we trust you as our sole satisfaction. Have your way your way and not ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.